Hello, welcome to series six of the Hey Festival podcast. For this series, we've been sharing recent festival highlights alongside backstage conversations with some of your favorite writers and thinkers on their personal influences and drivers. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by physicist Jim Al-Khalili. We'll be diving into technologies, teaching and public speaking nerves. But first, he talks to Glenn Morgan about his new book, The Joy of Science. There's always been that, that tension, you know, there's the, there's the great quote by the poet Keats. I know maybe we'll be talking about art and science later mm-hmm. on, but you know, Keats criticises Isaac Newton. So Newton discovers that white light is made up of a spectrum of colours, the colours of the rainbow, and uses a prism, and, and, and he, he describes the rainbow, and Keats says that Newton has destroyed the magic of the rainbow by breaking it up into its by breaking light up into its prismatic colours, and you know I, I talk about that in the book. I'm not the, the only scientist to write about. Yes, the, the front cover Why reflects it's rainbow reflects colours. Uh-huh. There you go. See, um, a, a lot of writers have, I mean, people like Carl Sagan have written about. Richard Dawkins has a book called Unweaving the Rainbow, mm-hmm. um, but the, it's a nice example because knowing more about how a rainbow forms is not about light going through refraction and total internal reflection and so on. There's a joy, almost spiritual in, in, in a sense, in understanding more about where a rainbow comes from, not just that pretty arc in the colour in, in the sky. For example, if you know, no two people, the two of us, for example, standing looking at, at the sky, will be seeing the same rainbow. Every one of us sees our own individual rainbow because the billions of raindrops that reflect the sunlight back into our eyes break it up into different colours and each colour heads in a particular direction. So the the raindrop that sends red light into my eyes is not sending that same coloured light into Glenn's eyes. Um, And so just knowing something about that makes the rainbow more beautiful. The fact that rainbows aren't actually arcs in the sky, they are full circles. They're only an arc because the ground breaks them off. If you stand on top of a mountain, or in, if you're lucky enough in a plane, you'd see a rainbow as a full circle. It, mm. isn't, that, isn't that lovely? I mean, <laughs> exactly. That, yeah, it, it, it adds, it to, adds the wonder, to the wonder. Exactly. Rather it than as as the, the, the Richard Feynman, the great American physicist, said, it, it only, knowing more about how things are in the world only adds to the, to the wonder. It doesn't detract from it. Mm, because so often, of, of course, you know, um, the scientific method is a. Is a a set of signposts or an instruction manual on a journey and science is a process of continual learning so mm-hmm. so we learn more about something and that doesn't mean that that topic is now dead closed and like no. you know finished inevitably we continue to find out more and we open answering questions finds and raises new questions. And, and sometimes we discover that what we knew before wasn't right mm. and we have to change our minds. And you know, we've, we've seen that during the, the pandemic as well. I think a lot of people, when I say science has been under the spotlight during the pandemic, a lot of people have understood a bit more about the process of science. But there will still be many who say, oh, you scientists, you know, with the pandemic, first of all, you told us we have to wash our hands and sing happy birthday twice through and we wouldn't catch COVID. Mm. Now you're telling us we've got to open windows or wear masks and so you know, you know nothing. The point was that was, it was new. We didn't understand how the virus transmitted. Once we knew it was transmitted through, uh, through the air, yep. we, we changed our view of how to, to, to tackle it. And, and that's the way science works. In the light of new evidence, it's okay to change your mind. N- rule, uh, lesson number seven, don't be afraid to change your mind. There you go, that's chapter exactly. seven of the there book. There you go. Um, and one of the examples um, that you, uh, or one of the stories that you tell, so this book is, is not... 
um, heavy with with scientific um, explanations of phenomena and things, but it is rich with stories from science and from the history of science that illustrate the different steps. And it, it is it's beautifully written, um, accessible work, as you would expect um, um, from from Jim's oeuvre. Um, but one of the stories you tell is um, of Einstein and the cosmological. Um, mm. constant and uh, as an example of that and I, I think that one's particularly uh, interesting I wonder if you'd like to relate yeah, it again well, it, 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 I mean it's not a talk about physics but I'll I feel well, I mean we've a got of, a, a bit great of physics, physicist yeah, here yeah, why not <laughs> <laughs> so when Einstein develops his his general theory of relativity in, in 1915 that's the theory of, of gravity so basically he goes beyond Newton Newton says gravity is this invisible force that pulls things together makes us stick to the ground, makes the Earth stick in orbit around the sun and so on. Einstein goes further and says, no, gravity is really the shape of space-time, which is a very technical idea. But he, he realises, and other scientists at the time realise, that his theory, his general theory of relativity, can explain the whole universe, because the whole universe is controlled, is governed by, this, by, by gravity. Um, and no one knew at the time then about the, the, the Big Bang, the birth of, of the universe. So Einstein assumed it was static, that it had always been around. He said, but all the stuff in the universe is pulling everything else towards it. So the universe should be sort of pulling itself together. How come it seems stable? If it's been around forever, how come it's sitting like this, static? There must be something else holding it static. It's a bit like kicking a ball up a hill but the ball is only, it sits halfway up the hill and it doesn't roll back down again. So Einstein came up with this additional um, term, mathematical term in his equation, which he called the cosmological constant. It's basically a number, but it means that when he cranks the handle and calculates uh, using his equations of general relativity to describe the universe's evolution, it stabilizes it. And then it's discovered that actually the universe started from a beginning, from a, from a big bang, and has been expanding. By, by the late 1920s, the American astronomer Edwin Hubble realizes that the universe really is expanding. Galaxies are all moving away from each other. So Einstein says, oh, so I don't need to stabilize the ball halfway up the hill. The ball is rolling up the hill. Now I can allow gravity to do its thing by slowing the ball down. At some point, the ball might reach some height and then roll back down again. The universe might re-collapse. Or maybe the ball will get to the top of the hill and roll down the other side. Or maybe it'll stop there and be balanced at the top. Or maybe it'll just keep on rolling, getting slower and slower. But I don't need a cosmological constant. And he called it the biggest blunder of my life. And just remove it. Take it out of the equation because the, the universe doesn't need that, that term because it's expanding. And of course, Einstein dies in 1955. Uh, nearly half a century later, in 1998, we discover that, in fact, the universe's expansion is getting faster and faster. Suddenly, we realize Einstein's cosmological constant fits that bill perfectly, because it's something that pushes the, the universe apart. Einstein thought it held it steady and stops it from recollapsing. Now it looks like it's what would explain what we call dark energy. And we're still not at the end of the journey, because we're exactly. still not quite sure that that explains what dark energy is. So even someone like Einstein, you realize you make mistakes, you discover something new, you change your mind, you move on. And that's the way science works. Making mistakes is part of doing science. If mm. we never made a mistake, then we'd still be thinking, we still have the theories that we started off in ancient Greece. 
So, right, we have to make mistakes in order to, you know. So, in science, making a mistake, admitting that you're wrong, is a strength. The opposite to politics. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, the, the, because of the way that, um, that science is often funded, you know, that funders like to see results. Results normally in, in people who are maybe not thinking like scientists means positive things and, mm. and change and proving things wrong or inventing something new. Um, so, so often there can be a reluctance to have, or, or you know, a, a sense of failure when you have negative results or, or failures. Um, but there, are, there is a journal of negative results, <laughs> I believe, which yes. only publishes these failures and negative results because that is a core part yeah. of... On, on an individual level, no scientist, however uh, much integrity and honesty they have, wants their theory to be proven yeah, wrong or the experiment to, to, to have given the wrong results because <laughs> someone else has shown it to be wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, we want to maintain, you know, mm. the status quo. But in science, we also know that the truth will out in the end, mm. which is why we always test and check our, our theories and hypotheses and check our experimental, experimental results again and again and again. Because if we don't and they're wrong, someone else will, 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 will find them. Mm. So that's part of the scientific method, that it's self-correcting uh, uh, f for science as a community, if yeah. not on an individual level. And it, th there's something about that, that the, um, the version of scientific truth that we, we hold in our heads, the, f the facts that we have learnt as being a scientific fact about the universe around us, because scientific knowledge is continuing to grow and change and things are being proved wrong or, or theories are, are made uh, are advanced in, in new ways, um, we sometimes find ourselves to be out of date. Mm. Um, the knowledge we have uh, maybe doesn't work anymore. Pluto uh, is no longer a planet and it, it ruins any number of mnemonic devices. <laughs> um, uh, atoms are not structured like the solar system. They're mm. actually much more complex than that. And, um, but that's not, a f that doesn't, that's not necessarily a failure of, of the way things, you know. No, no. And, and you can't teach children the, you know, the, the, the best way of describing an atom, say. I think it's useful as a metaphor, as a simple, you know, to give a flavour mm. of what, a rough idea of what an atom is like, is to think of it as a miniature solar system with the, the nucleus like the sun and the electrons buzzing around like the planets orbiting the sun. We've known for a century that that's not the correct picture of the atom. Quantum mechanics comes along in the 1920s and says, well, electrons aren't these little uh, uh, miniature planets going around the nucleus. They're like clouds of probability. Um, but even that's wrong because you have to go to what's called quantum field theory and realise yeah. electrons are simply concentrations of, 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 of the, the, the electron quantum field. But you can't teach that to kids. Yeah. What you do teach them is that this is, a, this is a rough picture. It's more complicated than that. That, you know, that there are higher levels, but you need to get this idea in your head first before you, you move on if you want to. But this is enough for now. Uh, so what we don't teach them is that this is all neatly packaged and absolute truth. Science yeah. is not about absolute truth. Science is about a journey getting towards the way things are, but yeah. we don't know if our theory tomorrow is going to be proven wrong. We just think it's the best we have for now. Um, rule num uh, lesson number two, I shouldn't call them rules. Lesson number two, it's more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> um, and, and also, I think, lesson number four, if you don't understand something, it doesn't mean you can't if you try. 
um, which I think is an interesting one. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there, are, there is such a thing as an expert. And, you know, I, I, I use the example in the book of my, my plumber having to come around because of that, my boiler was on the blink and it had some LED display saying error F6.1 or something like that. I had no idea what that meant. What do you mean you don't know what error F6.1? Well, Who doesn't well, know Well, what I could that have means. said to my plumber, <laughs> don't bother coming around, mate. I've had a look on YouTube. And I've seen, and I can fix it myself. I don't need experts. But of course, he comes around and says, oh yeah, I've seen hundreds of these before. You need a new circuit board, and I know that yeah. fixes it. And sure enough, that fixed it. Um, so we don't have to pretend to be, you know, experts and things. In the same way, I'm not going to, you know, fly a plane or, or, or be a concert pianist. You know, there are people who, who spent a long time training, learning a particular skill or have a particular talent for something. But that doesn't absolve us from, where possible, digging a little deeper into something. Mm. Not everything follows Occam's razor. You know, the idea that in, if there are lots of explanations of something, the simplest one is probably the right one. Very often, it's, it is more complicated than that. I interviewed Sir Peter Higgs on The Life Scientific many years ago, the, the, uh, the man who predicted the existence of the Higgs boson, named after him, so the, the, the elementary particle. And I asked him on The Life Scientific, I said, if I gave you 30 seconds, could you just give a brief definition of what the Higgs boson is? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, what if I gave you a minute? I'm thinking, this is great radio. This is really, none of this is going to make it. You know, has he give you a minute to do it? He said, no. <laughs> he said, because I spent half a century trying to get my head around this. <laughs> what right should your listeners have in, in understanding it in a minute? I wouldn't do it justice. Um, and of course, that whole him saying, no, I can't, made it into the program because it shows that sometimes things are more complicated. We can explain the flavor. As a, as, a, as a science communicator, what I try and do is get across the essence of something to the level that I feel the audience that I'm talking to would benefit and learn something or be fascinated by it, whatever. But that's not to say there isn't another deeper level that requires a lot of effort. You know, people say, oh, Jim, you're quantum physicist, you're so clever. Very flattering, but I'm no cleverer than anyone else. I've just spent all my life thinking about those ideas. Mm. I'm no, you know, I can might as well say to my plumber, you're so clever, you fixed that. And you'll say, well, that's it's just my job. And it's the same thing. So sometimes put in the effort, you could actually learn a little bit more than you thought you were capable of. Don't be afraid. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you don't need to be the expert in no. quantum physics or, or a, a mathematician to see an equation or, or whatever and to appreciate the, the beauty or, or the wonder or, or the joy of no. that thing no. um, either. Um, it's, it's that different. It was the same saying, you know, you, don't, you can appreciate music without having to be a concert pianist or composer, mm. right? We, we can all appreciate it at some level. And we can all appreciate the wonder of the world we've discovered through science at some level. We don't all have to be experts in quantum field theory, but we can get a sense of, of, the, the, of the wonder, the magic. And, and there's, you know, there's that creative process in science of, of discovering some, some of this stuff yeah. in the same way there's, there's creativity in, in the arts. Let's come back to that issue of, um, of science and art. So you, you mentioned um, Keats's uh, quote about Newton, um, which uh, you begin the book by talking about. And, um, and I, 
I mean, come on, Keats. I mean, I think to, I don't, I'm not even sure Keats really believed it because I think he's a young man. He's just railing against the great names of the previous generation and that kind of thing because he gets a great uh, narrative poem out of it. He writes, he writes Lamia, which is a fantastic piece. Um, and so actually you've got a really great instance there of science inspiring art in a really interesting way. But, but what it represents, that, that kind of, that quote, and, and the, way, the reason why yourself and, and um, Dawkins and, and others have kind of used it as an example is that it, it's, it's representative of a mentality that has been around for a very long time, probably since the kind of scientific revolution, that science and art are opposite, yeah. you know, there's yeah. the opposite poles of some sort of part of our, like yeah. literally left brain, right brain or mm, something. Mm. Tell us how rubbish that idea is. <laughs> well, I mean, and famously, uh, C.P. Snow, the Cambridge academic, wrote The Two Cultures. Mm. So the, these two cultures, the yes. arts, humanities on one side and science on the other, will, will never meet. Mm. For me and many science communicators today, one of our, our ambitions, remits in doing what we do is to embed science within popular culture, that we talk about scientific ideas. And we're sort of getting there. You know, we see in the news now, you know, pictures of black holes and things like that and yep. big discoveries in, in science. And it's not the thing that appears at the end of the news. You know. And finally, <laughs> in a sort of, the, my very best Jeremy Paxman, yes, and finally, these boffins, what have they come up with? It's, it's actually, it's part of something that, you know, it's part yeah. of our conversation. And that's the ambition, to talk about science in the same breath that you talk about sport and music and, and politics and, and literature. You know, why not? But the, the notion that art and science are very different processes in the brain of course, is a nonsense because science is just as creative as the arts. You absolutely need creativity in science, particularly when, you know, at, at the frontier in, in, in mathematics or physics or astronomy, to imagine, to, to come up with an explanation for something that we haven't understood until now mm. re requires absolutely creativity that's no different from creativity in the arts. Yeah. To watch the full event, sign up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. Between his events, I met up with Jim to talk more about his lifestyle and passions. He begins by tracing the origins of a lifelong interest in physics. I guess I must have been about 13 or so, is that, that sort of age when I realised that I was very good at physics. <laughs> I mean... I was good at school, most subjects, but somehow physics for me, I'd always felt, you know, I wanted answers to the big questions, you know, where do we come from? What is the universe like? What's the inside of a star look like? What is an atom? And I think around about the age of 13, I remember doing a good, um, uh, doing a class test in physics at school and doing really well. And I remember the teacher dragging me out in front of the class because I think lot, none of the other kids had done very well on this test. And so patting me on the head, and you'd think at that age it would be horrible. I just want the hole to open up in the ground. But I thought, hmm, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm good. Physics is, I mean, I preferred it to chemistry and biology because I didn't have to remember stuff in physics. It was all about puzzle solving. It was, about sort of, it, it was common sense to me. So from that moment on, I still wanted to play football for Leeds United. I still wanted to be a rock star, the usual stuff. But I thought, but actually, no, physics I'm going to stick with. And since that point, I think I'd never really deviated. Mm. And I'm still in love with the subject now. Did you ever have a kind of feeling like you didn't feel ashamed of it or uncool? Or I mean, there, were, there was certainly a time when I was in, at university in the 80s where you, people asked you what you're studying. 
and you and you sort of mumble physics under your breath because you know the shutters are going to come down. Oh, God, you're one of those boppins, are you? It was sort of not that cool. It's very different now. I think a lot of my students, you know, it's a badge of pride. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a physicist, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. There was some stigma attached to it that it was a bit of a nerdy subject. <laughs> didn't bother, didn't put me off. Do you think there's any kind of discoveries in your free time that have sparked any lifelong passions? Um, well, it depends what you call free time because a lot of my hobbies, <laughs> I mean, yeah, hobbies, sport and, and music and so the usual, the usual stuff. But a lot of my free time is taken up thinking about so reading about stuff about science, about physics, and it, it, because it's my passion, because I enjoy it, I don't see it as a job. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to do it. So the more I learn, the more passionate I am about the subject, the more I feel, you know, this is, this is my natural home. Where do you look for inspiration when you're needing it for your writing? Um, I'm not sure really, I mean, because I do lots of different things, because I, I'm an academic, so I teach, I do research, I do, as you say, I do writing and broadcasting. The writing is something that, that is very much, it, it's, it's just me. Um, you know, whether I'm doing my research, I'm collaborating with other people, or I'm teaching students, or I'm doing broadcasting, I'm working with, with producers and directors. When I'm writing, it's just me thinking about, particularly when I write to popular science books, how do I explain a difficult concept? And what sort of goes through my mind, the last thing before I fall asleep at night, or you know, I'd wake up in the morning and have an idea. It's not discovering something new, it's discovering a new way of explaining a complicated idea. So some new analogy or example. Oh yeah, that's, yeah, that, I can see how I can expand that and explain that. And, and it, it, uh, it's just me in control of, of, of everything with writing. So, so that, I, I find that's where my sort of passion comes in. But the writing and of course doing research, do, doing the independent research, trying to discover things for myself. And then the writing is telling the rest of the world about it. I mean, you do a fair amount of teaching as well alongside mm. this kind of writing work. Is that a sort of natural habitat for you? Or? Well, it, it, it's basically this what you do as an academic. You know, you, uh, you, to become a lecturer, you have to teach. Uh, some academics move away from teaching and just do pure research or become science communicators. I've always liked that, keeping my hand in. I always say I've, I've now taught undergraduates uh, in physics for 30 years without having a sabbatical. Wow. Partly because half of my life is a sabbatical. I come and go as I please. I do all these other, the other things. So I've never felt the need to break away from it. But every year for 30 years, I've taught at least one course of undergrad to, to undergraduate physicists. And, and I enjoy that. It's, it's scary. Sometimes I, I, I meet up with other academics who are sort of mid-career, you know, with families and kids growing up. And, so, and they said, yeah, you taught me relativity theory, Jim, you know, back in 1994. <laughs> and I think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary, but hey, you know, we're all getting older. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't stop that. Yeah, the passing of time. Yeah. Do, do you ever get nervous teaching anymore? Or? No, no. I mean, it, it, it's funny. I, I, don't have, oh, I don't have nerves teaching. I don't have nerves uh, when I'm sort of on stage communicating science, like here at the Hay Festival. I sometimes think I should have at least some butterflies in my tummy just you know, to focus the attention. The, I remember doing an event at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, I was introducing, I think Stephen Hawking was giving a lecture. Wow. And I had five, six thousand people. No nerves at all. I went out and introduced him. 
And the next day I was giving a talk on my research uh, at the Royal Society in London, only in front of 30 or 40 other professors. And my mouth was dry in my heart. Because there I'm talking to my peers. You know, you, you can't. <laughs> you can't bullshit them. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that that's what I do when I'm communicating, science, but you know, I was really try talking to my equals, many of whom know more about the subject than I do. So it depends. It's not so much the size of the audience, it's the expertise they have or what they expect of you. And when you're switching modes between, because obviously I, the writer's work is you're in very different spheres. Part mm. of it is you alone in a room with a pen, mm. and then obviously it's you on stage in front of people. Is it weird switching modes for you, or is that quite routine now? I, I can switch modes between being an academic scientist, a researcher, and a communicator, do an interview, or stand on stage, uh, giving a, a public lecture. That's fine. I think with writing, you can't say, well, I've got a couple of hours before my next meeting or next class, I'll, I'll write another a few hundred words of my book. No, I have to block off tomorrow and the day after our writing days. I don't look at my email, I don't do anything else because with writing you do, it takes a while to get into the, into the you, know, you can sit there staring at a blank screen for an hour before thoughts come. So I do have to sort of partition that part of my work from, from everything else. Yeah. Can you think of a time as well, of wonder what your relationship with your phone is like? Can you think of a time where you've been away from your phone for a period of time and how you spend that yeah uh, <laughs> I'm no different from anyone else I've got to check Twitter every you know every hour <laughs> um, you know it's so sitting on a train the phone comes out just like anyone else would do but um, no I think if I'm say if, if I'm really focusing on something if I'm doing some piece of research or calculation uh, or if I'm, I'm, I'm writing then I do have to put really put the phone aside for half a day. Take a lunch break, then catch up on emails, catch up on Twitter or whatever. But yes, I can't have it near me because the temptation is there to sort of pick it up and then that's it. I've lost my train of thought and I've got to start again. But it is funny, the, uh, you know, um, I, I remember being uh, in, my, in the physics department at Surrey University in my office and the internet went down. So this must have been mid-90s. And already, you know, we did, the internet had only been around for a few years already. The and, and you see all these academics walking out of their offices, bleary-eyed, thinking, you know, what do we do now? I, I'm, I'm not online anymore. How do I, how do I cope with life? Yeah. So it, it, it's amazing how quickly we, as a species, have, have, have learned to rely on the technology and are lost, completely lost without it. I mean, have you seen much of an impact on the ways that you're able to work, actually, since all of that's kind of grown? Well, it's made me much more efficient. I, I'm... I'm, I'm I have to be very careful with my time management, but it does mean I'm, I am able to multitask. I, you know, I, there, there isn't dead time. When I'm on trains, I do a lot of traveling by train and the, the laptop's out and I'm sending emails or I'm working on papers or, 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 or reading stuff that's work related. Um, you know, without, without the technology, I don't know, maybe I'd have more time to be contemplating abstract ideas <laughs> and reading books that I wouldn't have time to read otherwise. But yes, that's, Life does sometimes seem to be relentless in terms of filling in yeah. every second of the day. Yeah. I mean, Wi-Fi on trains, actually, it feels like it's a relatively... It's only in the last couple of years it seems to have mm. been really nailed. It used to be so patchy and rubbish. Absolutely. Um, I think that's revolutionised it for a lot of people. Um, what about food? Are you a big foodie? Um, I like cooking. I mean, I, I, I tend not to eat out too much. Um, 
because I know, you know, we, my wife and I can, can cook very nice food at home, so why, why would we go out you know, to have a curry out when we can cook a curry at home? So I enjoy food, I enjoy experimenting, I enjoy, you know, if, if we have people around for dinner, we'd hardly ever cook something that we've cooked before. Find some, some new recipe. And I treat it like a scientific experiment, of course, you know, I'm very, <laughs> very meticulous about how I, I don't just chuck things in any old you know, I've, I've to be very precise with all my measurements. Follow the recipe to the next uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, do you have any kind of traditions in your personal life that, that take you away from work year on year? Um, my wife and I enjoy walking. So we, we, where we, we live in Portsmouth, so we've got the, the Hampshire, the South Downs nearby. So every weekend we'll go out on an eight, 10 mile walk, uh, just enjoying the countryside. And then we've tried to, pre-pandemic we used to do this, we'd go out on these um, walking trips, organized holidays, we're a week away walking somewhere in, in Spain or Italy or Greece, you know. So, just, so I enjoy just being out in the country walking. Um, other than that, it's just the hobbies that I have, are, you know, are boring. You know, going to the cinema. <laughs> I, I've got a guitar that sits looking at me angrily in the corner of my study because I haven't picked it up for years. You know, so yeah, the usual stuff. Yeah. Do you play? Well, it depends how you define play. I learnt, <laughs> I learnt to, 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 to strum chords when, when I was a teenager. I've never had any lessons. So sort of the songs that I can still play were probably, probably like 1970s, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, oh, yeah. or, or Cat Stevens or something like that. So, no, I've never sort of practiced to, to get better at it. I've just, just whatever, it, the minimum it takes to be able to, to play a song that I know. <laughs> and um, have you got any kind of hobbies or interests on the horizon or on a bucket list? Um, my, my mother was an artist and I did at some point enjoy painting, uh, watercolours or, or oils and, and uh, you know, so I, I have all the stuff at home and every, every few years I, I'll get passionate about doing something, I'll buy a, 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 new, a new canvas and try and do something, but, but down in our cellar at home I've got a number of not completed bits of artwork which <laughs> which one day I might I feel I'm going to get back to so so yes yeah, so my life is full of all these hobbies that if only I had the time I would get back to them and one day I will but I don't have any passions like you know sailing or golf or something like that mm -hmm. which I think when I retire that's what I'm going to spend my time doing my wife is very nervous that I'm never going to retire <laughs> that, that I just, because I enjoy what I do and I'm mm. going to carry on doing it until I drop I suspect <laughs> <laughs> oh we hope that you do oh I think what drop <laughs> no no but carry on doing it yeah. <laughs> Sorry, keep going yeah absolutely um, have you got any kind of activities that you'll use if you're particularly stressed out at work or is there a way that you take a breather? Well, walking, walking to, to clear my head. I have to say I'm, pardon my personality, but also because I do a job that I enjoy, I hardly ever get stressed. I don't suffer from stress. I sometimes feel overwhelmed by how much work I've got on. But, I don't, but it doesn't stress me out. I just feel I have to sort of manage my time what if I can't do this I don't have time for it so be it so I'm lucky that I never I never feel down in the dumps as it were I'm, I tend to be an optimistic person <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess switching between different things as well you've got the kind of radio shows you contribute to and broadcasting and everything it must be pretty nice it, it's nice to have that variety mm -hmm. so I'm not doing the same thing uh, finally you know if I'm doing a TV documentary, I'm stuck in a field very early in the morning, you know, 
and then the director says, okay, Jim, just walk from here to there, you know, pretend you're thinking deep thoughts. So I have to <laughs> do some times table yeah. in my head or something. Uh, okay, now can you do it again? Now can you walk in the other direction? And, and I think, oh, I really want to be back uh, uh, in my office with my students talking about quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. or But then when I'm in, yeah, at university and endless meetings and teaching and marking exams, I want to be out on location doing another TV documentary. So yeah. grass is always greener. Yeah. <laughs> but it's nice to have that variety. And then with the writing as well, it takes me away in, into my own little space where I can be creative in my own time. I, I had to try and make keep those blocks there available and free for me to do but because I have this varied job with lots of different hats it means I never get bored and do you is that quite a mix like week on week yeah it comes in waves so it's, um, sometimes uh, you know I'd be heavily involved in university work so uh, during the semester when I'm teaching or, or with my research team I've got several PhD students and I might be involved with them and writing trying to get a paper published for example and other things go on the back burner the broadcasting stuff and the writing stuff and then there'll be periods when I'm going to be I know I'm going to be filming for a few weeks and the university stuff goes on the back burner or I'm in the middle of writing and trying to get a, a book finished so it does come in waves but it, at the same time there can be days when I have have to put several hats on you know teaching then I'm going doing an interview then I'm right doing a bit of writing and did something else. so uh, it's, it's just fitting in slotting everything in so that there's, there's room and space for everything to be done. What I don't want to be is sort of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, where you never get any job done properly. I need to have enough space to see something through to, to completion. Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join me next Thursday when I talk to children's author and human rights activist Anjali Q. Ralph about facing fears, school memories and ruining her eyesight with books. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about us or give us a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabie Nahado Achanith. I'll see you next week. <laughs>